Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It's the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, a humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the priesthood. I've come a long way. I was asked during the past week to give a talk to a gathering of humanists on what humanism can learn from religion. I think there are three really positive things about religion. Belonging, meaning and hope. Religion is really good at giving people a sense of belonging. I grew up with a profound sense of being a Catholic, an Irish Catholic, an innate part of my identity, who I was. So much so, in fact, that when I went on to study for the priesthood, one of the difficulties was, in fact, to break that identification with me as priest or me as Catholic and to realise that me as Joe existed and I needed to grow and nurture my personal identity as other than a Catholic or a student priest. So belonging and right from birth and infancy, that first act of baptism, which initiates the baby into the church. And of course, it comes with a whole mythology of cleansing, taking away the so-called stain of original sin. A horrible concept that we are somehow born with original sin. The notion of original sin is something that even the finest Catholic theologians will be shy to try to defend or explain. And yet the whole mythology of Christianity is built on this notion of original sin and that we need to be saved from it by the blood of the Lamb, by the death of Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus and so on. But apart from all of that pretty dodgy and indefensible mythology of original sin, the practical gathering of a family and the wider family and wider community of faith to welcome a new baby into that community of faith really works very well. It is something, of course, that I deeply regret because precisely because of that initiation of a baby who doesn't know what's going on, into a whole worldview and a whole way of thinking and a whole way of feeling. And as the child gets older, it'll, certainly in my case, I was taught, oh, that's a sin. And so there are all kind of things that that initiation into that family brings with it, guilt and shame. And also the sense that because you have been initiated into this family of faith, this community of faith, that you kind of aren't really free to think for yourself because there is a party line. The church teaches certain things and as a good Catholic you are expected to believe these things. And I certainly grew up with that sense of that I didn't need to think about a lot of things because the church had thought about them. The church had a defined dogmatic position on lots of things, moral things. And the church was right because the church was founded by God. And we could rely on the authority of the church to tell us what was right and what was wrong. Whether that was a moral issue or whether it was a theological issue, social issue. The other thing that the church is really good at is meaning. They present an interpretation of life. 
that the believer buys into. They do a lot of thinking for the believer. And it's something which often works against the chaos and randomness and the suffering and the trials of life. It is very tempting to believe that a church has all of the answers or many of them to the questions posed by living life, by being lonely, ostracized. For a lot of people, the meaning that the church offers is sufficient. They might doubt it at times, but it seems like a kind of a useful package. It seems better than the alternative of chaos and randomness. And then the other thing that the church is really good at is offering hope against the inevitable reality of suffering and death. Religions offer hope of a happy hereafter. And those three key ideas of belonging and meaning and hope don't go away when one moves away from believing in the stuff we were taught, in my case, as a Catholic. But for now, I do want to stay in my early childhood. Anna Karenina starts with that magnificent line about how happy families are all alike, but unhappy families are unhappy in their own particular way. Anna Karenina, magnificent novel. I mentioned in the last podcast that my oldest brother, who was 11 years older than me, was banished from home when he was still aged only 16. He went to live with my Uncle Joe and Aunt Cora and Cousin Derek. And we didn't see him again for four years when he came home to paint the ceiling. So I kind of grew up without knowing my older brother, Paul, because when he left at 16, I was only aged five. I have more memories of my other brother, who was the second son of my father's first marriage. His wife died giving birth to their third son. And again, I have very few memories of David at home because he was older than me. And then pretty much at the same age as Paul, when he was age 16 or perhaps 17, he disappeared, just vanished. And I had no idea where he was. I wasn't allowed to go into his bedroom. And we lived in a terrace house in Donnycarney, about three miles from the centre of the city. Quite a small two-storey terrace house, three bedrooms upstairs. The smallest was a box room, tiny room. And we weren't allowed into that room. So David vanished from our home, from our lives, And I suspected my parents knew what was going on, but I hadn't a clue. So David, like Paul before him, disappeared from home when he was 16 or 17. I was about 10. and I had no idea where David had gone or what caused his departure. There was a vague sense that he might be in London. Perhaps my parents had a phone number. But I think if he was in London, he was moving, as happens in London. And I think before very long, they no longer had a contact for him. Well, I know that. And after he'd left, I I was not allowed to go into his bedroom. I didn't know why. Whenever I asked about David, where is he? What's going on? As best a 10-year-old might, my questions were fobbed off. And I just never knew. So here was I, five years of age. My elder brother had been banished from home by my mother, either he went, she said, or, or she would go and she was never going to go. So he, he went and stayed with my uncle two years, then joined the army. And meanwhile, you know, a few years later, when my other brother got to 16 or 17, he also vanished. So banished and vanished. My home kind of began to feel a bit insecure. And I guess perhaps then the, the sense of belonging offered to me within the church 
perhaps compensated for my sense of insecurity at home. You know, is this what happens to children in this family when they get to their mid-teens? They get banished or vanish. And my mother behaved as if it was the most natural thing in the world for two older brothers to just disappear. You know, Paul living in the house one day and then not seen again for four years except to paint a ceiling. And David, he gets to his mid-teens and he's just never seen again at all, ever. And as I got older, it did become apparent that my parents didn't have any way of contacting him, weren't sure where he was, even if he was alive, and never knowing why he had disappeared. So it was, it wasn't normal. It wasn't functional. It wasn't healthy. And of course, there was no communication, no explanation. And so in this very uncertain life where belonging to a family didn't seem to mean very much, perhaps that sense of belonging to the church meant more. And perhaps in a place where I couldn't figure out the meaning of what was going on, my two elder brothers disappearing, and my mother just seeming to cut them off. No further communication. It was like being pushed out of the Garden of Eden. Not that my house was ever the Garden of Eden, but it was like that sense of you're just sent away, disappear. So again, perhaps the fact that the church was offering a meaning to life, however barking mad much of that meaning is. Yeah, is it any more meaningless than the alternative of life just being all hazard and chance? And then that third idea, the third good thing that religion can do in the human psyche, the sense of hope that there is suffering in life, there is death, and this hope that somehow it doesn't all just end in annihilation and the grave. And we all need hope. So that, I, I know, is part of what attracted me to religion. And in my teens, I got involved with charismatic renewal in my school. And that was, it was exciting. And I went to an all-boys school, so it was interesting that there were girls at the prayer meeting. And we got to hug each other and demystify these strange species of human beings who are girls. But again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I sensed my father's anguish. These were his sons. My mother had no blood relationship with them. And he was caught between his wife and his two sons. And he did not know where David was. I know it caused him anguish. That said, I also have memories of very unhappy memories. I remember one time hearing a door slam, the door between the kitchen and what we used to call the passage. We were end of terrace and we had a little passageway from the front garden to the back garden. It had been filled in with a door on either end and a, a roof, a slanted roof. We called it the passage. So a door slammed. My mother cried in pain. She said, and perhaps it is true, I do not know, that David had slammed the door on her hand. He may have done. He may not have done. He may not have intended to catch her hand. I don't know. But in any event, my father beat David with a belt in the passage. And I heard my <clears throat> my brother crying out in pain as he was beaten by my father in the passage. And David claimed he hadn't done it or hadn't meant to do it. That's one of the more vivid memories I have from my childhood. I remember hating going home the day that my mother was doing the washing. This was in the 1960s, perhaps the 70s. It was a tiny kitchen and the washing machine was in the kitchen and it had a ringer 
at the back so she would have to pull out the washing machine and she'd manually putting them through this ringer and then she'd be put, hanging them out on the line outside and it was like World War Two in the kitchen because my mother was up to high dough and it was just a belly full of tension to be in that house on washing day. My mother, I remember telling her that a friend of mine had said that his father was an engineer and she said, he's not an engineer, he's a mechanic. And it wasn't that she was correcting me, educating me about the different types of jobs, because I hadn't a clue what the difference was between an engineer and a mechanic. The point my mother was making was that an engineer had a higher social status than a mechanic. And I didn't know why it mattered, but it, it mattered to my mother. It took me many more years to learn to risk living with her disapproval. I didn't have the courage or the skill to face my mother's disapproval, to face my fear of my mother's disapproval. My mother once warned me. She said, once I turn against someone, that's it. I heard it as a warning. Whether she meant it as a warning or not, I don't know. And it took me a long time to realise that I was scared of my mother. I was scared of her. I was frightened. And why is any of this relevant? Well, because every single individual on the planet has their personal story. And faith, whenever it is formed, is formed within an individual's particular story. So it isn't as if my faith life began when I entered the seminary. I imbibed it from birth, watching my parents, attending mass. It was truly part of the air we breathed. And even though... I often kind of intellectually thought, if it's true, if the whole God business is is actually true, then if it's true, surely it's the most important thing for us to address. Why would you be playing golf or getting a job? Why would you do that if God sent his son to save the world? I mean, if all of that was true, it had to be the most important thing in life. But it was always if. If it's true, I need to take it seriously. And this is why this podcast subheading is Trust Your Doubt. Because I have always had doubt. And at crucial times in my life, I followed the way of faith rather than my doubt, rather than respecting my doubt. And doubt was seen as somehow sinful. The apostle of doubt, Thomas, the story, and it is, of course, a story in the gospel about how after Jesus supposedly rose from the dead that Thomas said I will not believe unless I can put my hands into his wounds and of course Jesus mysteriously reappears and Thomas puts his hands into Jesus's wounds and even St Peter had doubts he's walking on water Jesus calls him from the boat and he walks on water and then he begins to doubt and he starts to drown and Peter says help I believe help my unbelief On the contrary, I believe, I doubt, help my doubt, because it's by respecting your doubt that you can actually stand on your own two feet, become yourself, cast off the false identity you got by being initiated into a religion and find true meaning in your life, which you yourself decide about, rather than accepting a mythological meaning of life, which you're shouldered with by being initiated as a child into a religion. And find your hope in yourself and in humanity and the beauty and brevity of life. Live this day to the full, rather than, as so often happens with religious people, they suspend their life, they don't live their life, relying on a hereafter which will never come. 
I remember meeting a, a nun whom I very much respected as a person. And she was in her, I think, mid-70s. I asked her, do you have any regrets? And she did regret not having had children. And then I challenged her on relying on her mythology for morality. I said, but are you telling me that if you didn't believe in God that you would have been robbing banks and you would have been cheating and all of the things which the moral person won't do anyway? But she had spent her life being good, relying on a religious interpretation of what was right and wrong. And I think I sensed in her a regret. And also, but more crucially, I think I sensed in her the same detachment, which I always had, even as a believer, that this might not be true. Like as if she had held on to the possibility it might not be true. And how then to interpret the life that she had spent believing in an imaginary friend that doesn't exist. Sacrificing sexual relationship, children that were never born to her. What else is going on in my life at the moment? The Covid situation is depressing. Ireland had been doing so well. In June it looked like we had it beaten. And now as I speak Dublin going up to level 3. We seem to be going backwards. As a humanist celebrant, I still find myself with that dilemma, which is also the dilemma of anybody trying to plan a wedding or a baby naming. How can you plan for anything when you don't know from day to day what you'll be allowed to do or not do by the date of the intended ceremony? And my inclination again is to think, why not do this on Zoom? Do it online using Teams or Zoom. Because when you do it that way, you can have as many guests as you like it can be just as personal it is safe and you can know that barring the internet comes down and of course it could come down there could be technical glitches by which we'd have no control but apart from that you can have a fixed date and be fairly confident that a ceremony can proceed now obviously it can't be a legal ceremony all you need for the legal end of it is to go to the registrar and bride and the groom or the two grooms or the two brides with two witnesses, five people. That can be arranged. And then you can have your ceremony where your belonging and your meaning and your hope is celebrated with your family and friends contributing. And we can plan the ceremony just as we would for an in-person ceremony. Anyway, I think we should consider it. On a weekday evening, hundreds of men and boys, including my dad and I, were walking to our parish church for a men's parish mission at Our Lady of Consolation, Donny Kearney in Dublin. A massive church, like an aerodrome, absolutely enormous, built in 1969. But it was packed to the gills, absolutely packed out. And a redemptress priest, he commanded our attention. Men, raise your hands up high. We did. We put our hands up high. Do you renounce Satan? I do, thundered the crowd. Imagine this vast church, as big as many a cathedral and bigger than some, thundering out, I do. Manly men. My dad was a manly man. He worked in Guinnesses on the docks. And all his works, I do. And all his empty promises, I do. I mean, this was just collective belief. You're a kid growing up and you see all the adults, all the people. Hundreds. Could there have been thousands? I don't know. The place was packed. In fact, that church used to have four or five masses, if not seven masses on a Sunday. Loads of masses. And I remember like the the church was so full that there were stewards guiding people to where they might be able to squeeze between other people in a pew. It's unimaginable what it was like, how the entire body politic just bought into this religion. 
as did I. But at that retreat, men's and boys' retreat, I felt excited to be here with my dad. Ordinary Catholic men, tough manly men like my dad, professing our religion. And even today, the sense that I'm betraying the tribe because I no longer believe it. I no longer believe it. And one dear friend, he was like a foster father to me whom I met in the seminary. Paul, you know who I mean, talking about you. And Paul, even in recent years, cried and hoped that even now, approaching 60, I might see the light return to the church. And he, he cried. I'm sure, Paul, you won't mind me saying that because of your affection for me, your love for me, and the hurt that you feel that I no longer believe something which is so important to you and something which was very important to me. During Lent, of course, we gave up chocolate and sweets and we'd say the rosary every, every night. The family that prays together stays together, my mother would say, somehow missing the irony that neither Paul nor David were there. My dad would kneel down, his back horizontal, parallel with the, the seat of the armchair, his backside up in the air. We rattle off the rosary. Hail Mary for the grace of the Lord. Holy Mary for the grace of the Lord. Holy Mary for the grace of the Lord. Our Father Bart and Heaven. Glory be to the Father and Son. And that happened during Lent. There were May altars and we would bring flowers. The May. The May hymn. Da 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 da. Ba bum bum ba bum bum. Ba da 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 da. Those hymns were a huge part of connecting us with that shared identity and that sense of belonging and our sense of hope. I remember when I discovered the truth about Santa. My immediate thought was, God doesn't exist either. And yet, when just everybody around you seems to believe in God, you fall into that worldview. It's reinforced by pretty much everybody around you. That was the case for me. And one day as a kid, I found myself, no idea how old I was, perhaps six or seven, but I was in the living room, the room at the back of our house, looking out on the yard. My dad used to call it the yard and my mother used to take offence. It's the garden. And of course, we had this picture of the Sacred Heart overlooking everything, following you, following you around the place, no matter what you did. But I was lost in an unselfconscious reverie. And I was mimicking the words and actions of a priest saying Mass. I remember that moment so clearly. Where other boys might see a footballer and want to become a footballer. Or their dad as a carpenter and want to be a carpenter. I was clearly taken by the idea of the priesthood. And there was I, a young boy, unselfconsciously in the living room at home, mimicking the words and gestures of a priest saying Mass. Not mockingly, reverently. As I did so, I suddenly became aware that I was being watched. I had forgotten my parents were in the room. So caught up was I in in the moment, as children do. So suddenly I became aware that my parents were watching me. And my dad said, we might have a priest in the family. I was utterly mortified unintentionally having revealed my priestly ambition at so tender an age. It was an amazing kind of a psychological moment that by my acting as if I was a priest as a kid, in that moment I kind of realised I'm expressing in these actions something that I aspire to be. The mortification was, was almost like that of being found out. 
Now they know this is what I want to be. And you kind of think, how can a kid that young decide on his aspiration? You know, a future way of life. But I did. And I think I think I actually consciously decided I have to bury this. Because I didn't want to be going around for it to be known that that kid wants to be a priest. While I was still in primary school, one day I was seated at my desk writing in a crowded classroom. And a Christian brother came up behind me. He leant over the, the back of the bench and he appeared to help me with whatever exercise I was doing, whatever writing I was doing. He leant over my right shoulder and he fondled me, his hand on the outside of my trousers. And I knew he shouldn't be doing this, but I said nothing to anybody. He covered up his abuse by pretending to be helping me with my exercise. I told no one. In 1970s Ireland, who would believe a pupil against a Christian brother? Corporal punishment was still rife in Irish schools. We were slapped with leather straps for little reason. The sting on the palm of your hand after you'd been biffed was awful. Your hand would go red raw with pain. It's special leather, specially designed to beat kids. I also had an experience of watching a Christian brother brutally beat a fellow pupil. I remember this child had done nothing wrong. He simply didn't understand something and beaten brutally. And we all watched this with terror. And for a moment, I wanted to get up and walk out and call the head brother. But I wasn't brave enough or courageous enough to do so. And the next day, that Christian brother justified his brutality because the boy now understood what he hadn't understood the previous day. In that kind of an ethos, who, even if they had the personal skills to do so as a kid, would tell that a Christian brother had fondled you? A profound violation of me as a person for his sick sexual pleasure. And that moment of being fondled had a profound effect on me. I felt powerless over my abuser's authority. I resigned myself to it thinking, what can I do? It was, happily, the one and only time he did it to me. But I walked away from that, wondering, why me? Like, of all the boys in the class, why did he choose me? Is there something about me? And it undermined my confidence in myself. And I felt confused and isolated, and there was nobody I could talk to. Please do let me know where you are on your journey of trusting your doubt. Please feel free to email me at podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com That's podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com Or you can find us on Twitter at losingmyreligion1 That's at losingmyreligion and the figure 1. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losing my religion. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash losing my religion. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to follow us so you don't miss any future episodes. Talk to you soon. Meanwhile, trust your doubt. Happy days. Happy days.